When Aeneas visits the underworld, he sees great Roman heroes who have died and great Roman heroes yet to be born. Quote, Here is Caesar and all the offspring of Julius destined to live under the pole of heaven. This is the man, this is him, whom you so often hear promised you, Augustus Caesar, son of the deified, who will make a golden age again in the fields where Saturn once reigned and extend the empire beyond the Libyans and the Indians to a land that lies outside the zodiac's belt, beyond the sun's eclipse and the years where sky-carrying Atlas turns the sphere inset with gleaming stars on his shoulders. Close quote. From Wyoming Catholic College, this is the After Dinner Scholar, the college's weekly podcast about the great books and the liberal arts. I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. It's probably no surprise that Virgil wrote such extravagant praise of Caesar Augustus into this epic. After all, Caesar Augustus gave him the job of creating the founding myth of the Roman Empire that had supplanted the Roman Republic. As he has been teaching the Aeneid to our Wyoming Catholic College sophomores, Dr. Pavlos Papadopoulos has been thinking a great deal about that transition. Dr. Papadopoulos, you mentioned that as you and your students have been reading the Aeneid, you've been spending a lot of time thinking about the death of Julius Caesar. Um, tell us about that. Yes. Well, we read the Aeneid in our sophomore humanities class, which is focused on Rome. And the Aeneid is a kind of text that could drop in at almost any point in the semester and, and be a success. Um, the events that the Aeneid describes are the oldest events. They're all the way back in the age of the Trojan War and the decade afterwards. So it's, it's far before, hundreds of years before the founding of Rome, uh, which is what we started with when we were reading Livy this semester. And so you could make the argument that the Aeneid should be the, the first text that you read, kind of bridge to the mythic Greek Homeric world and the earliest events, this character Aeneas, the son of Venus fleeing Troy and then becoming the progenitor of the people who would eventually become the Romans. So there's a good case to be made that it should, should be read first. You could read it in, in the middle as well uh, for certain reasons. This semester, I decided to put it uh, almost at the end. We just, we just finished it and, and the only thing afterwards will be two days on St. Augustine's City of God. And I decided to put it all the way at the end because um, that's really when when Virgil wrote it. He wrote it after the events, all the other events that we look at in this class, with the exception of Augustine, which is to say he wrote it after the founding of Rome, after the monarchy in Rome, after the establishment of the Republic, after the rise of the Republic, after the peak of the Republic, after the almost century-long series of civil wars that end with, well, that culminate in Caesar, Julius Caesar's dictatorship, the assassination of Caesar, the civil war that follows, and then Octavian, Caesar Augustus's victory over his opponents uh, in that final civil war of the first century BC. And it's in that period of peace during the reign of Augustus when Augustus is establishing a new order uh, in the wake of, in the decades after the death of his uncle Julius Caesar, that's when Virgil turns to write the Aeneid. And, and so he does something very strange because there's an old story that Augustus Caesar asked Virgil to write an epic poem about him, about Augustus. And Virgil 
wrote the Aeneid. <laughs> uh, instead, in a certain sense, instead. And so it's it's not explicitly about Augustus Caesar. Maybe it's written to Augustus Caesar, not to flatter him, but to, to educate him and to show him this is what it means to be a Roman. Uh, and so the context in which Virgil writes the Aeneid is the first breath of peace for decades that that the Romans have had in in a century, really. And there's a, a lot of, there's hope and there's also fear and trepidation that we have this new system of the Caesars. I guess we're going to have more than one. It's not just going to be Julius. And we don't know. The, the Romans at the time don't really know uh, what this is going to work out to be. Is, is this a restoration of the Republic in some way, as it's often uh, Augustus uh, said it would be? Is this a wholly new order, uh, for better or for worse? Can it be a kind of recovery of something from the past, even as it's something new? And I think that's ultimately what, what Virgil is doing in his, in his poem, uh, is he is trying to show his, his, his audience, the Romans, and especially Augustus Caesar, and any future leader of Rome, that in order to deal with the radically new circumstances of Rome after, after these civil wars, once it has become this worldwide empire and once the sort of institutions of the Republic have broken down, you need to do some recovery work. You need to go all the way back to the roots before Rome itself was founded. You have to go back to Troy and the virtues that Aeneas brings to Italy. Now, I understood that Augustus did, in fact, commission Virgil to write this thing. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? That's Yes, that's what the story says. Yes, that's okay. what I understand. Well, it's a story or it's just... That, as far as we know from the historical record, yes. Okay. And, and, and Aeneid, uh, excuse me, Virgil read, read parts of the Aeneid, you know, as he was working it out loud to the court, including, including Augustus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, why portray Rome as the work of Trojans whose defeat and near obliteration is described by Homer. It's uh, on the one hand, it's strange. So, so you don't want to trace yourself to a bunch of losers if you're the sort of the winner of the world and dominating the world. So, uh, on the one hand, Virgil is just dealing with the stories that he has, which is that there is this man Aeneas who was a Trojan who fled from Troy, who gave birth to Ascanius, then Ascanius founds Alba Longa, and you have centuries, and then from there you get Romulus and Remus. So on the one hand, the, the myths that he has inherited do point back to Troy. So in a way, he he has to acknowledge that. But he made the choice to focus on it, right? You, you start reading Livy's history, and Livy mentions this man Aeneas from Troy, and then he focuses on Romulus and really picks up his story um, following Romulus, Remus, and the, and the kings. So it was a conscious choice of Virgil's to focus his entire account on this one man, Aeneas. Why Aeneas? Well, if you go back to Homer, you actually find that Aeneas comes off in a pretty good light. He is already there, seen as an admirable man, beloved by the gods, certainly by his mother Venus, um, or Aphrodite in the, in the Greek poem. And so you have some, as it were, positive source material uh, to work with. But I think there's a there's a deeper reason for for Virgil to go all the way back to Troy. On the one hand, focusing on Troy gives Rome even more legitimacy, even more antiquity than it than it obviously has as a physical city in in the Italian peninsula. Um, Troy is the great power that existed in the millennia before 
Virgil's time that all of the the great Greek stories point to Troy as this glittering, powerful, imperial, almost imperial city. And so it, there's something attractive about connecting yourself to that, to that city. Now, the fact is, though, that it was destroyed, and it seems to have been destroyed with, with the consent of the gods or by the will of the gods. And it's certainly what you get, the impression you get from, from Homer. And Virgil really leans into that side, that sort of theological element of the destruction of Troy. And so uh, he, he doesn't so much focus on indicting Troy itself, but he does show that it is the will of the gods that Troy must fall and that something new must be must be done. And this is portrayed very dramatically in book two of the Aeneid. Aeneas is in Carthage telling the story of the fall of Troy to Dido, who is, who is hosting him. And Aeneas describes having a dream uh, in which the ghost of Hector comes to him and, and tells him that he needs to leave the city. He wakes up to the sound of the city burning, and it sounds like a... a uh, a fire ripping through a field. It's this really evocative image and terrifying. He wakes up and he starts moving about the city filled with rage and resolve to go down fighting to kill as many Greeks as possible. He realized what has happened, that, that the Greeks snuck in in the Trojan horse, and he is absolutely consumed with, with fury. And so his first reaction is almost this Achillean or Homeric reaction of being filled with rage at your enemies and and giving into it in this kind of strangely admirable but also terrifying way. And what happens is that Venus, his mother, comes and appears to him and pulls back the mist from his eyes and shows him that the real agents destroying Troy are the gods themselves. Look, there is Neptune, and he's putting his trident under the walls that he himself built, and he's sort of levering it up to, to destroy the walls of Troy. In other words, Venus reveals to Aeneas that this thing is coming to pass by the will of the gods, and it's impossible uh, to fight it. And so Aeneas is, there are several stages to this, but in book two, Aeneas's rage gives way to a kind of acceptance, and his, his heroic ep epithet is pious, pious Aeneas, um, he is the man with pietas, with piety. And what Virgil shows us is that that piety requires a kind of awareness of and assent to whatever it is that the gods are willing for you, for your destiny, for your people. And so Aeneas, during the fall of Troy itself, he, he goes through the stages of raging against this unstoppable fate to realizing that it's unstoppable and therefore accepting it and realizing that he, he doesn't quite know what will come next, but he has to do something else. He has to go find his family. He has to rescue them. He has to lead his, or uh, carry his father out of the city, leading his son and his wife behind him uh, out of the city to go do something else. And it remains a bit of a mystery in book two as it unfolds. He's wandering about the Mediterranean like, like Odysseus in a way, but he is searching and, and asking the gods and asking his father's help in discerning the will of the gods for, for where they're supposed to go. And they have a number of false starts where they, they think they're supposed to go back to where their ancestors came from. So at first that seems like that's Crete. Uh, but then it turns out that actually their other ancestors came all the way from Italy. So this, this strange story of the man fleeing his city, fleeing his home, fleeing the only place he has ever known to be his own, 
turns out to be like the Odyssey, a nostos, a return home. And so they're going to somewhere that they've never been, but it turns out that Teucer, who is one of the progenitors of Troy, you know, un untold centuries before, actually himself came from Italy. And so it turns out to be a, a return home, although it's, it's, it, it starts out as we have to go do something and we don't know what it will be and it will be new and it will be something new. And yet it, it has to be rooted in the very earliest roots of, of Troy. Why was it so important for Rome to have this founding myth? If you think about the political and historical context of the, the last few decades of the first century BC, the reign of Augustus after the death of Caesar, there's a number of options on the table. You can try to go back, right? You can, you can say now that we killed Caesar, uh, now that we also killed Brutus and the conspirators against him, um, maybe we can in some way restore the Republic. And, it, and we can sort of live in the Republic as it used to exist in the manner in which it, it used to run. That looks increasingly untenable by the time that Virgil is writing. If you go back a few decades, if you go back to the, the decade of, of Caesar's rise, um, the last few years before his, his dictatorship and assassination, you have a great example of Cato the Younger, uh, the Stoic statesman who really rages, well, not quite rages, but digs in his heels against the rise of Caesar and decides to fight him to the bitter end. This is before the assassination of Caesar, during Caesar's rise, and commits himself fully to the, to the forces of the Republic that are trying to oppose Caesar. And when Cato at, at Utica is facing Caesar's army uh, almost alone, he decides to commit suicide, to kill himself rather than give Caesar the pleasure of defeating him or even give Caesar the pleasure of sparing him because this is something that Caesar is very famous for is his clemency towards his old enemies. And so Cato is a good representation of this proud response to the turning of the cycle of regimes from Republic into whatever this new Caesarist regime will be. It's a, he's a good example of just simply saying no, firmly, very firmly saying no, even to the point of, of taking his own life rather than accept the new order. And then you have other figures like Brutus, who once Caesar is dictator, Brutus and others lead this conspiracy to assassinate Caesar. And, and then you see the civil war that is triggered by that. So the question before the Romans is, do we try to go back? Do we try to restore something that was lost or do we go forward? And if we go forward, how do we go forward? And if you keep in mind that context for Virgil's writing of the Aeneid, uh, you can sort of start to analogize uh, between his story of Virgil and, and the, or, uh, of Aeneas and the fate of the Roman regime at the time. There's a, a moment in, uh, in Aeneas's wanderings early in the poem when he he comes across some Trojan refugees who have, uh, including Andromache, the, the widow of, of Hector, who have built a replica Troy. They've built a mini Troy and it has a little gate that's named after the gate that was in Troy. It's got, there's a little river there that they named after the river that was right there in Troy. It's all kind of diminished, but it is an, an attempt to recreate, literally recreate and rename, uh, resurrect the dead city. And Aeneas admires it and is in a certain way tempted to stay, but he knows that his destiny is calling him to something else. And so there are these temptations along the way of trying to 
create this replica of the past and then live in it almost like a fantasy world. And Aeneas instead is called to go all the way back to Teucer's homeland, go all the way back to Italy and bringing with him his father who, who, who dies in the, in the course of the journey. And so he has to become himself the, the father and authority figure, bring with him his gods, bring with him his piety and bring with him what is revealed over the course of the poem as this more and more fully elaborated sense of his own destiny of what the Roman people will, will do and become. He needs to go all the way back to recover the, as it were, the spiritual resources for, for founding something new. And the whole poem is about the spiritual founding of Rome. Um, Aeneas is, is described in the very opening lines as the one who's going to found the high walls of Rome. And of course he doesn't. Rome itself is physically founded some 400 years after Aeneas's death. Uh, but somehow he's got, got to build up the character and the vocation of the, of the Romans and he's got to start to enact the arts that the Romans will become famous for practicing. And in order to do that, he needs to accept that the past is past. He needs to accept that Troy is burnt to the ground. He needs to accept that somehow, for some reason, that was the will of the gods. And what the gods are telling us now is that we need to go forward. And the only way to go forward in a um, productive way and in a virtuous and admirable way is to recover the deepest sources of our tradition, the Trojan tradition, which turns out to be in Italy. And so it's it's this paradox and you, you go all the way back in order to go all the way forward. And that seems to me like a kind of allegory for Virgil's own time, that we have something unprecedented. We have Augustus Caesar. We have to go all the way back to the kings before the Republic or to Aeneas before even Rome was founded in order to navigate the storms of, of the future. You know, just having celebrated Thanksgiving, it seems to me that that's part of the American founding myth, along with the, the 4th of July and so on. How important is it to recover our own founding myth? I mean, is, is, there, a, is there a lesson here for us? Well, it's, it's striking, isn't it, that the, the time between Aeneas's own death and the actual founding of Troy is 400 years. And we're 400 years out from, from Plymouth, right? <laughs> we're four, so you could say we're entering just now, just now entering the fifth century of American history. Um, if, you, if you think about Jamestown or, or Plymouth Rock as, as the, the founding moments. 1776, you know, it's a, it's a shorter timeline, but there are still centuries under, under our belt. And what Roman history shows is that uh, you have, again, in the first century BC with Livy, then with, with authors like Virgil, you have these men who are significant, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years into their, their nation's history. And they're, they're turning around, looking at what it, what it is and what it's become, scratching their heads and saying, what resources do we have to think through what we are, what we were, what we can be? It's exactly what Livy does at the beginning of his history. He says, we need to go back to the beginnings of our history, figure out what made Rome great in the first place, and then uh, pick out lessons, um, sort of virtuous lessons and also cautionary tales for ourselves and for our country as a whole. Individual lessons and civic, political, public lessons. We need to go back and recover 
those examples, positive and negative, so that we know how to conduct ourselves now in this new era of Roman history. And I think that's what Virgil's doing. I think that's exactly what what we need to do. And again, it's 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 funny to realize that Livy, who is the great historian of early Rome, and Virgil, who's the great mythologizer and poet of sort of pre-Roman Rome, they were writing four centuries into, uh, or uh, more than that, um, into their city's own history, centuries and centuries into their republic's history. And it's it seems, when you're just looking backwards, it seems like the end, and yet they still have centuries before them that their own text and their own vision uh, will inform. And so, yes, I think it's it would be uh, very good for us to go back to to the pilgrims, to the early settlers and colonists, to the men and women who lived here for centuries before we were independent, before we were formally independent, and then who who fought the the revolution, forged the new nation, came out here to Wyoming and settled the West. Uh, we need to go back and and figure out what it was about those men and women that gave them the conviction, the toughness, the virtue, the the piety to settle, to found, to colonize, to explore, to tame um, this continent. And it's hard to know where our nation goes from here. It's hard to know where our regime goes from here, but it was hard for Livy to know that. And it was hard for for Virgil to know that in their own cases. And I think uh, an imitation of them would would be a good thing to to go back to the earliest men and women of our of our own nation and see what virtues we can recover and what what vices we can learn from and, and avoid. As Christmas approaches, we again review the great Christian founding myth of the incarnation of the Son of God. And by myth, I mean what C.S. Lewis meant when he called Christianity the true myth, the great and true story to which all other myths point. And while Bing Crosby crooned there's no place like home for the holidays, our story goes well beyond home and family. Christmas is a particularly important season to recall that. As Christ was born in Bethlehem, so we are born in Christ. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tokowicz.